Make sure you've got your coffee and you're sitting back and relaxing, folks, because we've got an inspiring guest on Let Fear Bounce today. Mr. Terry Tucker is my special guest, and you are definitely not going to want to miss this episode. So sit back, relax, and listen into the show. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let Fear Bounce. This is Kim Langling, your host, and I am so pleased that you are spending a part of your day with myself and my special guest today, Terry Tucker. He is a motivational speaker, author, and international podcast guest on topics of motivation, mindset, and self-development. Now, in his professional career, and I was just amazed by this, folks, and you probably will be too, Terry has been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, business owner, and motivational speaker. And for the past 10 years, a cancer warrior, which has resulted in the amputation of his foot in 2018 and his leg in 2020. He is also an author, folks. He is the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles, to leading your uncommon and extraordinary life. And he is the developer of the Sustainable Excellence Membership. Wow, Terry, there's just so much stuff that we can dive into and half hour is not near enough time. (laughs) Golly, golly. So welcome, Terry, to Let Fear Bounce. Well, thanks a lot, Kim. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I've been excited about this conversation. We were talking off mic. I said, oh my goodness, you have such an eclectic background. I don't know where to start first. Okay, first, just because my my curiosity is just killing me here. How, in, in your range of everything that you've done, did you become a SWAT team hostage negotiator? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there really is a backstory. And, and as I told you before we started to record, if you understand the backstory of our resume, it makes a little bit more sense. So I, when I graduated from college, my father, who was probably the most influential person in my life, was dying of cancer. And his father, my grandfather, had been a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed, during the Great Depression in the late 20s and early 30s. And even when the the gangs, Al Capone and those guys were were shooting up the town, and he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad always remembered the stories that my grandmother told. My dad was an infant at the time of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not you're going to go to college, you're going to major in business, you're going to get out and get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. Right. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. That wasn't what I felt my passion or my purpose was. So I had a choice when I graduated. I could have said, you know, sorry, dad, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go off and blaze my own trail. Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. So that's what I did. I, I went into business. My first job was in the corporate headquarters Uh, in the marketing department of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Mm -hmm. And then I became a hospital administrator. And and I sort of joke, I said, you know, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away. And then I followed my own dreams and I got into law enforcement. And that allowed me the ability to become a SWAT team hostage negotiator. So was that something that you actually wanted to do, that particular skill to be a hostage negotiator? Yeah. 
I yes and no. Uh, you know, SWAT is usually on in most police departments. They're they're the better officers. They get the best training, the best equipment. So I've always wanted to be part of the best. So when they had an opportunity uh, on the on the negotiating part of the SWAT team, SWAT for those who don't understand it is usually broken down into two groups: the tactical team, which is the group with the uh, all the funny guns and the toys and all that kind of stuff, and the negotiators. And if we do our job as negotiators then the tactical team doesn't get to use all their toys. And so sometimes they're not happy about that. But <laughs> but our job is, is to basically make it so that whoever we're dealing with comes out safely and, and everything is resolved. And about 90% of the time that happens, about 10% of the time the person decides that they're not going back to prison or something like that and chooses to end their own life. But again, we do everything we can to, to get them out safely. So yeah, it was something I wanted to do because those were the best people. And I wanted to be, I've always in my life wanted to be associated with the best. So yeah, when that opening came, I absolutely jumped on it and it was a great experience for me. Oh, I can imagine. And you know, the, as you're talking, I'm thinking of all of the skill set that you had to have learned to do that as well as what you learned in the midst of that, you know, emotional intelligence and how to listen when words aren't spoken, how to figure out exactly what's going on, you know, reading between the lines. And I can only, only assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that time frame that you spent doing that job, which is, is I, I do want to thank you for that. That's, that's amazing. Anyone who is, you know, serving the public and serving the community in any way in uniform, I feel needs high respect and high accolades. So thank you for that. Thank you. But all of that, that you had to learn mentally, mentally, the stuff that you had to carry would be stressful, but I can't imagine that it didn't, all of that stuff that you learned didn't stay with you as you faced your own personal struggles moving forward. Oh, it absolutely has. And, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, it, most of what we did in law enforcement was face-to-face -face with another individual, whether we're pulling you over, you know, and giving you a ticket for speeding or we're showing up at your house on a domestic violence run. It's face-to-face. -face. And as negotiators, we were not face-to-face -face with the individual we were negotiating with. So you're right. We had to figure things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And and you're building a relationship. And, and just like, you know, a parent or a child or a husband and a wife or a boss or a subordinate, the, the overarching point of all that is trust. And so you're trying to get this person that you don't know and that doesn't know you to trust you and think that you have their best interest at heart. And we do. I mean, we really do want to get the person out safely. And, and so we would ask how and what questions. And, and the person didn't realize this, but if I ask you a how question, I've now engaged you in helping me to find the solution to whatever the problem is. You don't realize that because, you know, it's just not something you're thinking about. But I always describe kind of what we did is if you think about a teeter-totter or a seesaw that we all played on at the park when we were little, when we started negotiating with the person, their emotional brain was way up in the air and their rational brain was down on the ground. And by asking these open-ended questions and then attaching emotion to it and basically parroting it back to that person, we bring that teeter-totter to equilibrium or hopefully we get the person's rational brain up in the air and their emotional brain down on the ground. Because let's face it, we all make better decisions for ourselves 
when we use our emotional brain, or excuse me, our rational brain, as opposed to our emotional brain. So yes, I, I, I certainly learned a great deal about listening to understand versus listening to respond. I learned a great deal about silence, about using silence to our advantage. And, and like I said, you know, we, we got real good and everybody thinks like, you know, we're like Superman. We do all this stuff. We don't. I mean, there is a primary uh, person who's negotiating, but there's also another negotiator sitting right next to the primary, listening to everything that's going on, but not saying anything. And then there's three or four more people out, what I used to call working the crowd, you know, trying to get intelligence. Why are we here? What happened? So as a negotiator, you may get a note from your secondary that says, you know, don't talk about his mother. Because the, the people in the crowd learned that, well, the reason we're here is because he had a big fight with his mother and, you know, he got a gun and he barricaded himself. So it's like, oh, OK, so so it's a group effort. It's not something that one individual does and, and, and sort of saves the day. And the last thing I'll, I'll say about this is we always used to get credit for talking the person out. What we really did was listen them out. We, we, we let them burn off a lot of that emotional energy by talking and talking and talking. And then when silence would happen, we wouldn't say anything and we were uncomfortable with silence. So more talking and talking. And like I said, eventually you get to the point where now the person's thinking with their rational brain. Now that's the time to talk about solutions. How are we gonna get you out? We'll put the gun down, let the hostage go, whatever that is. We don't talk about that stuff at the very beginning when you're very emotional. Yeah, and you mentioned several times the, the active listening part and, you know, being able to figure out probably from their tone of voice and all of that. And their, their rational brain is pretty low at the beginning and you're building that relationship, you know, and it's just so fascinating to me. I've always found the whole communications thing, especially in situations like you're talking about, or even, you know, like what we're doing right now, just chit-chatting. We're basically two strangers just having to chat. <laughs> you right. know? And I'm asking you very personal questions. <laughs> Sure. But my job is to listen, you know, it, it, to hear what it is you're saying and maybe what not you're saying. And then it's also my job to come up with questions. Obviously, it's not a SWAT team right. scenario, but I've always found that that kind of topic fascinating to me, you know, how to communicate better and using emotional intelligence and how, how to hear what's not being said. And you had mentioned you're not face to face. That would make that even more difficult. Because at least when you're face to face, you can get those physical cues, you know? Yeah, you can. You can see the body language. You can see the facial expressions. And you you have to try to listen for that in the person's, what they're, like you say, what they're saying or what they're, they're not saying. And there were many times, especially early in the negotiation, where, you know, we'd spend two hours kind of over here talking about something when the real problem and the reason we were there was over here, but that person didn't trust us enough to get to the point where, hey, okay, I'll, I'll open up and talk about what we're, what we're really doing here and stuff like that. So like I said, early in the negotiation, you don't ask the person to put the gun down. You don't ask them to come out. You don't ask them to release a hostage because you haven't developed the relationship. You haven't developed the rapport that would give you the credibility to ask them to solve this situation in a peaceful manner where they could come out and everybody else you know, could come out safely and we could all go home. It's just amazing. I, I've got so many questions I could ask you on that. We're going to save that for another day. Sounds good. <laughs>
seriously, we're saving that for another day. I like it. Because <laughs> I want to hear more. I have all kinds of things going on in my head. You have, like I said earlier, you've done a lot. Um, and the SWAT team thing just topped out at me just because I found it fascinating. You're also a high school basketball coach, business owner, and a motivational speaker. So, and also you're a cancer warrior. So I'm assuming that that means you're still in that battle. I am. I have tumors in my lungs. I actually just came off of a week of treatment last week. So yes, I'm still still battling cancer. And how long has that been? It's been over 10 years. 10 years. That's a yeah, long I, I got a, a very rare form of melanoma. Uh, most people think of melanoma as too much exposure to the sun and it affects the melon, the, the pigment in your skin. I have a rare form, an incredibly rare form that appears on the bottom of your feet or the palms of your hands. And it has nothing to do with too much exposure to the sun. There's an even rarer form of melanoma that appears in your mucous membrane. So in your nose or your mouth or something like that, but it's still melanoma. And it has been, my wife and I were just talking uh, a couple of weeks ago about when I first was diagnosed, the oncologist pulled her out of the room and said, look, the, the five-year survival rate for this disease is not good. Do you think he can handle that if I tell him that? And she was like, oh yeah, he can handle it. And and I I, I do joke, it, it, this does really happen every year. I get a I get a letter from the tumor board. I was treated at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, which was is probably one of the most dynamic, most progressive cancer centers in the United States, maybe in the world. And every year I get a letter from their tumor board that asks me to circle one of three choices. Am I still alive with no cancer? Am I alive with cancer or am I dead? I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to circle the dead part, right. but you know, but they get, they send that to me every year. And, and I love, you know, it's almost out of spite. It's like, no, I'm still here. It's been, you know, 10 plus years. It's almost, it's going on 11 years now that, you know, I want to circle that thing. Yeah, I'm still here. I, I've got cancer, but I'm still alive. It's still kicking. Right. And, you know, I, that's amazing and wonderful, actually. And what a journey that you've had. My gosh, you could have several books just in in that, you know, to, to that's something to think about. <laughs> it, it is. It, it's funny, though, because, you know, and, and I did. I wrote a book about my cancer experience and I tried to get it published. And people kept telling me, unless you have a huge following or you're, you know, Tom Cruise or somebody like that no publishing company, I mean, if you want to publish it on your own, you can do that, but no publishing company is going to, you know, publish a book about cancer. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll, I'll write another book then. That, that's fine. I can do that yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, getting, breaking into the traditional publishing, is it's tough. It's a, t it's a tough gig, but there are other ways that you could be very, very successful at it without having a traditional publishing house. Um, the, your journey on, on cancer, and I know a lot of my listeners have loved ones that have cancer or had cancer and sadly have passed away. My sister has been through the last 10 years, two bouts of uh, cancer. So for the past 10 years, and you've actually, you've had surgery and, and lost a limb due to having cancer. And here you are a motivational speaker and an author and sharing all kinds of stuff out into the world. And you certainly don't seem to me like anything has brought you down. Now, realistically, I know that you probably have your days. Anybody would, you're human. But for those that are listening, 
and your journey's been a long one, what is something that you could share with them? Maybe a little personal anecdote that when you did have one of those bad days or days with an S, what is it that you have inside you that brought you out of that and said, all right, screw it. We're, We're fighting another day. I've been going this long. I'm going to keep on fighting. I'm fighting another day. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think one of the things that helped me, I, I play, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to college and, and play all the way through my senior year in college. And I think one of the thing, things that the team, it was team sports for me. I think it can be whatever team you're on, whether it's your, you know, your family or, you know, you've got something else that you do where there's a team. One of the things that team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So when I had my my leg amputated and found out I had tumors in my lungs, my doctor wanted me to go on chemotherapy. And I was eight years into this fight. And, you know, I kind of looked at him and was like, is it going to save my life? And he was like, yeah. Probably not, but it might buy you some more time. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do that. If the outcome is going to be the same, do I want to go through all that ugliness and that misery? But I'll go home and, and, and tell my family and ask my family what they think. And, and this, this it's a funny story, but it really did happen this way. So I go home. It's just my wife and daughter and myself. And I start telling them about what the doctor wants to do. And my daughter's like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board here or something like that. You know, so so we all sit around the kitchen table and we talk our, about our individual thoughts on me having chemotherapy. And then when we're done with that, my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my wife and daughter raised their hand like, wait a minute, am I getting outvoted for something that I don't want to do? But I remember back when I was in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people that we love the most to class. And as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves out on the street, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I ended up taking chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because my wife and daughter did. And in hindsight, it was the right thing to do. It acted as a bridge to get me to the point where I am now. I've been on a clinical trial drug for the last 10 years that does nothing to the cancer, but the way cancer proliferates in the body is it secretes an enzyme, a protein that hides itself from your immune system. And all this drug does is get rid of that protein so that your own immune system can say, wait a minute, that's cancer. Just like you can say, hey, wait a minute, that's a cold or that's the flu. We need to attack it. And so it does nothing to the cancer, but unmasks it from my immune system. And for the last year or so, my scans have shown I've been stable. I still have the tumors in my lungs, but they haven't gone anywhere and they haven't gotten any bigger. So we're continuing to do that. I started this trial with two other people. They unfortunately passed away last year because of the disease and I'm still going. So I'm kind of the, I sort of feel like I'm the standard bearer. I'm the person that you know, needs to keep their memory alive and needs to keep moving forward with this. So long, long, long story, but an answer to your question is basically, I think you need to be part of something that's bigger than yourself and realize that if you're just thinking about you, you think about all the ugliness that cancer brings to you 
if you start projecting out or how can I help other people? How can I make a difference? Now, all of a sudden, you're not focused on you. You're focused on other people. Perfect. That's perfect, actually. Because if you did do nothing but focus on your illness, you would just think, you know, it would be so easy to sink into this massive pit of despair. It, it does. And, and, you know, I had, a, I had a nurse recently that asked me, you know, what was it like to have your foot amputated in 2018 and then have your leg amputated right in the middle of the pandemic? And, and I told her, I said, you know, it, it hasn't been easy and, and I'm still learning how to walk again. You know, when you're six foot eight, falling is not an option. You know, you get hurt when you fall from that height. But what I told her was, is that cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Kim. That's who everybody who's listening to us is. And, and, you know, we spend so much time in our lives thinking about our bodies. You know, I got to look good or my hair's got to be good or I got to be wearing the latest thing. That's that's all immaterial. I, I tell you to spend more time working on your heart, your mind and your soul, because in all reality, that's really who we are. And that's all you can take with you. Right. You can't take any of the other stuff with you. So really, it, in the long run, what's more important to you, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I love that message that you just shared. So thank you. I sure. appreciate that. So where do you see... I know you're a motivational speaker. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I like to jump around apparently because that's yeah. how my brain works. <laughs> when did that come into play in your journey to be a motivational speaker? Literally right before COVID hit. And I remember, you know, I, I was going to do this and then COVID hit and everything shut down. Nobody was doing anything even virtually at that time. So I, I was like, well, like so many other businesses, how do I change the way I deliver my product? How do I innovate? And somebody had reached out to me and said, would, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And I, this is honestly, the, the, the truth came. I said to him, what, what's a podcast? I had absolutely no idea what a podcast was. And they explained it to me and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll be happy to do that. And I was so scared and so nervous. I had I had notes all around the camera, you know, and they would ask a question and I would be like, well, the answer to that is, and I would <laughs> yeah. read the note. And I was terrible. I was terrible when I started. And kind of coincidentally, I did a, I did a podcast about three weeks ago with a former NFL player, National Football League, you know, professional football player here in the United States. Now, this guy is six foot six, 300 pounds. He put his arm on the table and his arm almost blocked out the camera. That's how big this guy was. <laughs> And we were talking afterwards and he said, you know, Terry, when I first started my podcast, I was scared to death. And I was like, you, you too, you know? So, I mean, it doesn't matter how big, tall, strong, tough you think you are. We all kind of are like, well, this is new to me. You know, it's scary. I don't know what the answers are. And we both came to the realization, look, you just need to be authentic. You're going to make mistakes. You're, you're, you're going to be terrible. And my, the publisher of my book, he and I were having a discussion one time and I told him, I said, you know, Scott, I listen to every podcast I've been on before I put it up. I said, because I want to be good. I want to tighten up the stories. I want to not say um as much. I want to be a good guest. And he's like, Terry, you don't understand. It's not about being good. It's just about not sucking. And I'm like, oh, hey, thanks for the title of my next book. You know, just don't suck. You know, yes, but no, that's a perfect title. It is. It's totally it. And so, but I said, no, I said, no, that's not what it's about for me. I want to be good at this because this is a medium 
that I've chosen at least to do while COVID was going on. And now that things are opening up, I'm, I'm doing a little more in-person stuff, but I still do, you know, probably, I don't know, eight to 10 podcasts a week when I'm not in treatment and have been a guest on over 500 podcasts all around the world based on something when I initially started that scared the heck out of me and I was terrible at. I was going to say, I love that, but I mean, it sounds funny to say that. I started my podcast right at the beginning of COVID when that all happened because I had lost my job and I was home and I was like, what do I do now? Yeah. And I was like, you know, I've been hearing stuff about this podcast thing, <laughs> literally. And I didn't know anything about it. I researched it for about two hours and then started one. I just jumped into it and said, got to do something while I'm sitting home and can't leave the house and everything's closed, you know? Yeah. And here we are, you know, two and a half years later, I'm still doing it and, and enjoying it and have met just amazing people. And was there probably a little nugget of fear in there for me as well? Probably. I just ignored it. <laughs> you know, yeah, I was like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to figure it out. I'm going to, and when I listen back, if I go back and listen to those first, I don't know, because I'm, I've, I'm over 150 episodes now. Mm -hmm. So if I go back and listen to those first few, I'm like, oh, wow. Wow, Kim, <laughs> you really, you sound a lot better now than you did then. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, to me, I didn't really, that whole thing of what are people going to think didn't really enter my mind. I thought this is something I'm going to do. I love meeting people. I love sharing their stories and getting their voices out into the world. And so I'm just going to keep on doing it. And I love how you were so honest and said you wanted to be good. So you had sticky notes with your answers all over the place. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard that. So I like that, that story. That was awesome. <laughs> but it was true. And, and that's, you know, and, and you're right. I mean, we all have these fears. And I think what one of the chapters in my book I talk about that I titled was most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And it sounds like you did that. I know I did that. You know, this professional football player did that. I think everybody who's ever been successful in life has had to face their fears. And nobody wants to make mistakes. Nobody wants to, to mess up. But the road to success is paved with failure, is paved with making these errors. And like, ooh, okay, yeah, if I, if I ask that question again, I'm going to say this instead of that. And, 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 that, and you, you develop, you get better. I mean, when I first started playing basketball, I wasn't very good at it. But that's why we practice. That's why we do things. You know, you practice because you love it. And it sounds like with your 150 episodes, you've enjoyed meeting people. And so you want to keep doing this and you figure out ways. Oh, that wasn't very good. I'm going to change this. Or I'm going to... And that's what we do. We adapt. We get better. But so many people let their fears and insecurities rule them that they never. And I always say this, especially to young people. If there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Right. Well said. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I, and we've all, we've all done that. Put aside or pushed down what we had a passion for or what we would really want to look into. Maybe we would suck at it, but at least we tried it. You know, for myself, 
and life happens, you know, or you get married and you've got kids and you're working full time. So all of that stuff takes up so much time. And then you reach a certain point in your life and you're going, you know, you might have empty nest. And this is what happened to me. It was just me, me and the dog. And I'm like, I'm in my fifties. I think maybe I need to find out exactly who Kim is now, you know, and what am I good at? What am I passionate about? And what do I love doing? And so I sat down and made a list and that's, I'm like, all right, well, we're going to try this podcast thing. And that led into other things, many other things that I'm doing. And it sounds like that's pretty much kind of how, what, (laughs) what you're doing. It is. I mean, one thing I learned, you know, I mentioned my father had cancer when I graduated from college and, and my dad had end stage breast cancer back in the 1980s, which for a man was incredibly rare. And the doctors really didn't know what to do. And, and so they, they pretty much, I mean, they threw some, some stuff against the wall to see if it would stick. But for the most part, they told him to go home and die. And he lived another three and a half years. And he did because I believe he had a purpose. He, he was in real estate and he worked up till two weeks before he died. And I sort of tucked that in the back of my mind. It's like, okay, when it's going to be my time in the barrel and we all have our time, I want to have a purpose. I don't want to just lay in bed and think, oh boy, this is terrible. Wait a minute, my foot's been cut off. Oh, wait a minute, my leg's been cut off. Oh, I'm, you know, yeah, I can think of all the negative things, but what can I do? How can I use my journey to inspire, to promote, to help other people in their journey? And, and that's really what this has all been about. It's it's not been about, you know, selling books or, you know, look at me, I'm, you know, important or stuff. I'm not. I, I, I like you said earlier, I have those bad days. I have days when I cry, when I feel down, when I feel sorry for myself. I just don't let myself stay there. I just keep trying to move forward. And sometimes moving forward is, you know, I always talk about winning the day. Sometimes winning the day is winning five, this five minutes. I've just got to get out of bed and get to the couch. You know, and if I can do that, then I've won the day. And and it's those small things. I mean, we all want to, you know, we want to succeed and we want to succeed in a grandiose way. Well, sometimes we can't. Sometimes we've just got to get out of bed. And, and for some people listening, like, well, of course, it's easy. Yeah, for me, it's not that easy. You know, there are days when it's it's hard for me to get out of bed and that because I don't have the health. I don't have the appendages and things like that. So, you know what? We're, we all have our own suffering. And I, and I hate it when people, they, they compare. It's like, well, I've had this, so I'm, I'm, I'm worse off than you or you're worse off than me. You know what? Just like in life, we all have our own path. We all have our own journey. Don't compare yourself. Don't compare your disease. Don't compare your job or how much money you make or what kind of home you live in to somebody else because that's, that's not your journey. You're on your own journey and spend time focusing on that. You know, and I've had that conversation with quite a few people that, you know, how you just explained that. And I would say to folks, you know, you can't sit there and compare, you know, this disease to that disease, or I lost three family members and you only lost one, you know, and all the, and I said, how can you possibly compare? Because everybody's journey and trauma that they're going through is theirs. And in that, in their realm, their world, their life, that is huge. And it could be debilitating or not all depends, you know, on who they've got surrounding them and what their mindset and things like that is, you know, and it, you cannot ever compare or judge. Because but people it, do all the time. Oh, I know. I know. And that's, 
Yeah. So frustrating. And I've always said, you know, I want my life to be shaped by the decisions I make, not by the decisions that either I don't make or that other people make for me. But I've seen so many people over these last 10 plus years that just turn their life over to to a doctor or a therapist. And it's like, you make all the decisions for me. And, and I'm sure my oncologist is ready to hit me over the head with a two by four sometimes. You know, it's like, you know, just shut up. You don't know what you're talking. I'm like, you're right. I don't know what I th- I'm talking about. But here, I'm thinking about this. What are you thinking? And help me to understand that, not in doctor speak, but in English that I can understand and I can make decisions on. And I, I am lucky I am at a university setting for my cancer. So I have access to a lot of, I have have an oncology pharmacist. And I remember I was reading an article about two doctors over in Portugal that were doing an experiment with uh, DHA, which is a fatty fish oil that's good for your heart. And they found that when cancer cells take up the DHA, it acts like a Trojan horse to them and it kills them. So I was immediately like, oh, hey, I'm calling the pharmacist. I'm like, I would like to do this. What do you think? And she's like, let me research it. I'll get back to you. She called me back the next day and she's like, no, Terry, we don't want you to take it because it can cause bleeding and you've already had a blood clot in your lung because of your cancer and you're on a blood thinner. So if you take that, you're at more risk of of bleeding out. So don't do it. Okay, I can understand that. That makes sense to me and I didn't do it. But don't just dismiss me because I have an idea and I didn't go to medical school. I want to be involved in my own health care. Exactly. You have to be your own advocate. You absolutely have to be very persistent and be your own advocate. And please don't just say, yeah, here's my life. I'll let you make all the decisions because doctors don't know everything either. They don't. And they, and what doctors don't know, I, what the other thing I hate on the doctor side is doctors that say, oh, you know, you got six months to live, you know, get your affairs or it's like, wait a minute. You don't know my heart. You don't know my soul. You don't know my daughter's getting married next spring or that my son's graduating from school in in May. And I'm going to be there for that. So don't just tell me I'm going to be dead in six months. Work with me. Understand what I'm going to put forward on this. And I'm telling you, your mind or your mindset really dictates all this stuff in your body. You, You know, again, it goes back to, you know, cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. And as long as we keep a strong mindset, it's amazing what we can accomplish. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I'm so glad that you said that. I completely agree. So all you folks out there listening, I hope you heard that. <laughs> I hope you heard that. So time has flown. And a half hour goes really, really fast. I've got a ton of other questions. Um, so I would absolutely love to have you back on in a few weeks. I would love to, to come back and talk with you. Yeah, this would be awesome because there's there's so much more that we can talk about. And your your spirit, I think, shines through um, for those, you know, everybody that's listening. I hope that you can hear it as well, because I can certainly hear it. And the world needs more of needs more of that positivity. And the world needs to hear you. I think that's just what I'm getting nudged in my head right now. The need the world needs to hear you more. Um, and you know, if my little, my little platform on let fear bounce can help you do that, then I certainly want to, I certainly want to be a part of that. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being on let fear bounce. This has been amazing. And again, in a few weeks, folks, we are going to have this gentleman back on because I'm excited to hear more of his journey and what little nuggets of light that he can toss out to all of us that are listening into him. Terry, thanks again for being on let fear bounce. And I cannot wait to talk to you again soon. Well, thanks for having me on, Kim. I greatly appreciate it. And all of you out there listening, folks, this is your host, Kim Langling. 
And this is the show, Let Fear Bounce. Thanks so much for spending a part of your day with myself and Terry Tucker, my special guest today. Everybody be well, stay well, and be blessed.